The coronation of Queen Elizabeth II happened on June 2nd, 1953 in London. She was 25 years old when she became Queen of England. And her coronation was the first monarch to be, she was the first monarch to be coronated on television. So created and it um, was historic for that reason alone. It was the first time that the subjects of her kingdom could actually see a monarch coronated and experience it for themselves. Her father, King George VI, had died over a year earlier, on February 6, 1952. But it's customary, I guess, for royals to observe a period of waiting between the death of one and the coronation of the next. Of course, since these people are family, a father-daughter situation, you don't want to uh, hurry up and give somebody power while his body is still warm. And so it's sort of appropriate to recognize his death. It's appropriate to mourn before giving power to the next person. But Elizabeth then had been queen for over a year before she was actually publicly set forth as Queen of England in her coronation. Now, if she had been serving in this role for over a year, why bother? Why bother going to all the expense and trouble of having a public coronation when the reins of power had already been passed upon her father's death and everyone knew that she was now at least the figurehead leader, of the nation of England, the kingdom of England? And the answer is, in order to publicly solidify her as the leader, as the reigning monarch of her country. A coronation is a display of authority. That's how human governments begin. Human governments begin with a declaration of authority. And this declaration of authority can happen in different ways. Coronations and inaugurations are ceremonies. They are ceremonial ways to declare the authority of a new ruler. And they stand in contrast to other less pleasant ways of establishing a leader's authority. Unlike a military conquest where the tanks would roll into town or an assassination where someone who wants to seize the reins of power might brutally and publicly kill the one who holds power or a military coup d'etat. All of these are less pleasant ways of declaring someone's authority. A coronation and inauguration is a ceremonial way. It's a bloodless way. It's a more pleasant and um, interesting way to hand power and to designate who the new leader is. That's why people do them. And these ceremonies are designed, though, not only to identify who the new leader is publicly, but they're designed also to cause others to recognize and submit to a ruler's authority. You see, in every coronation, in every inauguration, there are certain symbols and ceremonies that are carried out. But there's an implicit message behind those things. 
And the implicit message is that this is the authentic ruler, that this person rightfully holds the reins of power. And the implicit message then to those who might want to hold the reins of power is don't bother. Don't mess with the new leader because the military is on that person's side. And this person has guards to protect their life if you should try to take it away from them. This man or this woman is now in charge of the military and they will carry out what the administration says. And so the implicit message behind a coronation or an inauguration is this. Don't mess with the leader. This person is in charge legitimately. And they will not spare you if you try to take them on. This is why I say these ceremonies are declarations of authority. They are ways of saying, this is the person who's in charge. In our passage this morning from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40, we see a similar type of presentation, a similar declaration of authority. This is, as you know from the reading that we've already done together, the incident in the life of Jesus that we remember on Palm Sunday. Luke doesn't mention the palm branches, but this is the same event. It's what we call the triumphal entry. And just as human rulers and human governments begin with a declaration of authority, this incident in the life of Jesus was a declaration of his authority. In the triumphal entry, Jesus declared his authority as king while he lived here on the earth. And as we walk through this passage together, and as we visualize together what these words describe in the life of Jesus, I will try to show you, and I hope you will see, how the authority of Jesus as king is proclaimed, is demonstrated again and again and again throughout this passage of Scripture. The triumphal entry was Jesus' declaration of authority. His authority as king while he lived on this earth. Let's look together at our passage beginning in verse 28, where it says, after Jesus had said this, after Jesus gave a parable that sort of sets the table for what happens next, verse 28 says, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now you remember from our previous messages that Jesus has been going to Jerusalem for quite a while. It's been many chapters of Scripture that have reminded us again and again that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And we are to understand that Christ is going to Jerusalem. He's going from the northern part of Israel to the southern part of Israel where Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, is located. He's on his way there, but he's taking a long, circuitous route. He's stopping at many villages and cities along the way, and he's preaching the gospel. And as he goes, he's accumulating crowds of people who go with him because Christ and his disciples and everyone, they're on their way to observe the Passover feast. One of the major festivals in Israel's uh, calendar. And so Jesus is on his way to the Passover feast, but he's taking his time. He's stopping in these villages and cities. He's preaching and he's gathering people to come with him. And from previous sections, as Jesus went through Jericho, which is pretty close to Jerusalem, we've seen that there's quite a large crowd that is traveling with him at the time. But Luke ignores the crowd traveling with Jesus and really isolates in on him. In this section of scripture, it tells us in verse 28 
that he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And the idea of going up means that uh, Jerusalem is on a hill, and so everyone who goes to Jerusalem goes up. It doesn't matter which direction you're coming from. But we're told in the passage, in verse 29, that he is actually coming from the east. It says in verse 29, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. And this locates Jesus on the east side of Jerusalem. On the east side of Jerusalem, there's another mountain called the Mount of Olives. And in between them is what's called the Kidron Valley. From the Mount of Olives, even today, you can get a spectacular view of the city of Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming in from the east before he gets to the top of uh, the Mount of Olives. He encounters these villages. First, probably, is the village of Bethphage, probably because we're not really sure where that is. It's not an interesting city other than being mentioned here. It's not even probably a city. It's probably like a collection of little um, people's houses, like a small village. But the Bible tells us this is where Jesus comes. He comes to this place called Bethphage and then Bethany, which is a better known place. It's where Jesus' friends live. It's where he actually spends the night while he is here. And he approaches these areas. And then Jesus begins a series of actions that are designed to declare him as the authoritative king of Israel. And notice these actions and how they undergird the authority he wants to communicate. Verse 29 says, As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. In this section, Jesus is beginning to prepare his entry to Jerusalem, his what we've called the triumphal entry. And even in his preparation, we see declarations of authority. He declared his authority as he prepared to enter Jerusalem. And we see this in the way that he tells the disciples what to do and how to respond to others. Notice again in verse 30, Jesus gives the command, and it is a command, it's not a request. He tells two disciples in verse 30, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. These are very authoritative instructions. And and Jesus um, tells the disciples to carry out these actions on his behalf. And as he does this, he displays one of the unique characteristics that Jesus had. One of the things that makes him one of a kind which is his knowledge of things that he shouldn't know anything about. Notice in the passage, Jesus tells them, you're going to go into this village, you're going to find a colt tied there, it's a colt that nobody has ever ridden, untie it and bring it to me. How does Jesus know this? How does he know that there's going to be a colt tied there? And how on earth can he know that it's a colt that no one has ever ridden? I mean, wouldn't you have to surveil the colt from the time it was born up until now to be sure that no one has ever ridden it? But this isn't a communication of the authority of Jesus because it communicates something about his personhood. And that is that although he is a man, he is not merely a man. This is a display of what we call divine omniscience, the fact that God knows all things. And in saying these things and telling the disciples things that he couldn't know about in advance, Jesus is communicating that he is king because he is God. He knows things 
And that displays his authority. But his authority was also displayed not only in the display of his omniscience here, but also in the way that he commandeered the cult of another man. I love that word, commandeered. All right? It means to take over and use as your own. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. It's the best word to describe what happens. He tells the disciples not to buy the colt, not to rent it, not to ask permissively if they can borrow it. He says, take it. And notice the words here in verse 30. He says, you'll find in the middle of the verse, he says, you'll find a colt there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And then Jesus anticipates that somebody might not like this. He anticipates that someone might have an objection to them just walking in and taking something that isn't theirs. And so he prepares them, again, showing his omniscience with a very authoritative answer. Verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. And so Jesus not only anticipates what's going to happen, but he takes this cold without asking for permission and gives the disciples an answer to make the objection to it go away. And lo and behold, this is exactly what happens. Everything Jesus says happens exactly as he described it. Verse 32 says, those who were sent ahead went and found it. Notice, just as he had told them. What Jesus envisioned is, is exactly the reality that they encountered. And verse 33 goes on and says, And as they were untying the colt, just as Jesus anticipated, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? Now, this isn't just a friendly neighbor looking out for somebody else's property. This is the owner. And their response to um, this owner, just as Jesus commanded them to say, was to say, The Lord needs it. All of this is a demonstration of the authority of Jesus Christ. He's not taking this colt forever. It's not grand theft theft cult here that's going on. (laughs) Jesus is using it for a purpose, but he uses it authoritatively. Now, we are told that in the culture in which Jesus lived, that there was somewhat of a custom of people who had authority to use the property of others for a time as they needed it. And sometimes this extended even to rabbis, where rabbis could use the property of others for their purpose, and then, of course, return it back to its rightful owner. And so there is some precedent for what Jesus does here. It wouldn't have been totally out of left field in the world in which Jesus lived. But the way he did it is so authoritative. It is to say not that Jesus needs it, although they could have said that, but it's that the Lord needs it. It's not the rabbi that needs it. It's the Lord who needs it. What Jesus is saying here is my mission is God's mission, not only because he is God, but because this is the will of God for him, and he is going to carry it out with divine authority. And so the way Jesus undertakes his preparation for this task is a a display of his divine authority. But there's more to it than that. Because even the way Jesus rides the colt is a display of his authority. Notice the passage again. In verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and so the disciples here decide to give him sort of a makeshift saddle. And you understand that everyone in their world wore an undergarment that was a long, completely covering your body type of garment, and an outer garment, a cloak. They're taking off the outer garments, all right? And they take these outer garments and they put them on top of the colt to serve as a cushion for Jesus, as a saddle for him, so that it's more comfortable for him to ride. You wouldn't want the king to be uncomfortable as he rides the colt. But notice 
that it says, um, continuing in verse 33, I'm sorry, and down in uh, verse um, 35, they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. Now, we need to go back to an important detail that I mentioned briefly, but that we need to think about the implications of. Back earlier in the verses that I just read for you, in verse 31, we are told that this particular cult is one on which no one had ever ridden, and that's kind of a key statement. Now, I know about as much about animal husbandry, and um, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe it, taking care of animals and like training them. I know much about as much as about that as I do about metallurgy, about construction, um, about farming, which is to say nothing, all right? I don't know anything about this. But I have read that before you ride an animal like this, and by the way, this colt is a donkey's colt. It's not a horse's colt. Horses were not um, widely distributed in the area in which Jesus lived, but donkeys were. It's unwise to try to ride an animal that has not been trained for riding, but Jesus does. And in your small groups this week, if your small group leader um, indulges me, I provided a link to a guy on YouTube who attempted to ride a donkey that had never been ridden before. Okay, it's it's a very short clip and it's a little entertaining, all right? It's unwise to ride an animal that has not been trained for riding, but Jesus does. Why would he do this? It's because he has unusual authority. Not just authority to commandeer someone else's property for his own use. But even the natural world itself recognizes the Lord. And even this donkey, on some level, understands that it is the will of God for him to present the king of Israel, the king of all creation. To the people. All of this preparation for the triumphal entry emphasizes the authority of Jesus as he prepares to enter Jerusalem. But there's more to it than this. Because the act itself that Jesus does here is also a declaration of his authority. He declared his authority not only in his preparation, but he declared his authority through the ceremonial way he entered Jerusalem. As we read these words, what happens is a little strange to us. And it's a little strange to us because we're not familiar with the customs and with the scriptures. And think about this. Jesus is someone who for for three years has been traveling like crazy. He's been going from city to city, town to town. He never bought property or built a home for himself. He lived like a nomad, teaching God's word. And everywhere he went, he went on foot. Jesus walked everywhere he went. And now he's been on this long journey over many, many days and weeks and months where he's walked the entire time. And now that he's just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem, all of a sudden he needs a ride. Why is that? It's not because Jesus was unequipped to walk into Jerusalem. It's because, just like we have coronation ceremonies and inauguration ceremonies that are designed to communicate something about the person being coronated or inaugurated, so the way Jesus enters Jerusalem communicates something about him. And that something is that he is king. He declared his authority through the ceremonial way he entered Jerusalem. 
In verse 35, we read about the disciples putting their cloaks on top of the, um, the colt to make it more comfortable for Jesus to ride. In verse 35, then, we read about Jesus riding the colt, and we need to understand that this all was, was preordained and prophesied in Scripture. That the way Jesus, the reason that Jesus takes this colt and rides it is in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. So that not only would God's word in the Old Testament be fulfilled, but that the people would see this is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been reading about. This is how Messiah is supposed to come to us. Notice these passages of Scripture. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 33 through 35, you'll remember that when David was old, one of his other children tried to make himself king. And in a scramble... David got his administration together and said, no, Solomon is the genuine king. They, they created on the fly a coronation ceremony for Solomon. And that coronation ceremony involved him riding on David's animal. Notice this passage in 1 Kings 1, 33-35. David said to them, take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon, my son, mount my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. There's the ceremony. Blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him. Remember how I said every time you go to Jerusalem, you're going up no matter what direction you're coming through? That's what's going on here. He's saying, put Solomon back on the mule and lead him up to Jerusalem. Notice. And he is to come and to sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. And so part of riding this animal is mirroring the coronation of Solomon. It's a a way of sort of resonating in the minds of Israel, the people who've read the story of Solomon's coronation. That Jesus' entry to Jerusalem has certain elements in common with Solomon's. But there was a direct prophecy that said that Messiah would enter this way. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the scripture says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God's people had been reading these words for centuries and waiting for the day when Messiah would come. And now when they see Jesus riding this colt into Jerusalem, everything clicks into place. And the echoes of Solomon's coronation and the instructions of these words that they had heard over and over again are now starting to be visualized before their very eyes. The Messiah that they've been longing for and that many have said is this guy Jesus is now riding a colt into Jerusalem just the way Zechariah said that he would. This is designed to convey Jesus' authority as king. But there's more. Verse 36 goes on to say this. As he went along, people spread their their cloaks on the road. So the disciples took their cloaks off, their outer coats, and put them on the colt to serve as a saddle for Jesus. The rest of the crowd that was accompanying Jesus, they get the point of what Jesus is doing here. And they take off their outer coats and lay them down on the road. And of course, the symbolism here is the king deserves to have a nice mudless pathway into the city. But there are echoes of another 
coronation in the Old Testament, that of the king named Jehu. And we read these words in 2 Kings 9, 13. They took their coats and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. Why did the people take off their coats and lay them on the roads? And why did, according to Matthew, people cut down palm branches and lay them on the road? It was, again, mirroring this coronation of Jehu. It was a way of emphasizing that Jesus is coming into town as king because he has authority. But then we go on into verse 37, and we hear the words that are said about Jesus as he enters the city. Verse 37 says, And when he came near to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, so I said actually that this is him entering the city, but he's still outside the city. He's coming down the Mount of Olives. He's entering the Kidron Valley. He's still outside the city of Jerusalem. The crowd accompanies him, and all of this symbolism declaring him as the king is going on. And then we read, as this happens, In the middle of verse 37, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So all these disciples that Jesus has accumulated on his way, not only are doing symbolic acts to demonstrate that he is king, but they begin to praise God. And we're told the reason that they praise God at the end of that verse Verse 37, is for all the miracles they had seen. Now, this seems a little random. Jesus hasn't done any miracles. I mean, he, he knew that, you know, he did the foreknowledge thing, but only two disciples were aware of that happening. And so why are the, the miracles invoked in this point? Why, is, why did the miracles of Jesus give the motivation to people to proclaim Jesus as king in this way? And the answer is that the miracles of Jesus were done to authenticate him as the king. Jesus was not coming to Jerusalem as king because he just decided he wanted to be the king of Messiah. And the people were not flocking around him and doing these symbolic acts because they decided, hey, he's as good as anybody, let's make him king. No, they have come to a conclusion about the person of Jesus. It's a very specific conclusion, and it was led by evidence, the evidence of his miracles. As we have studied the book of Luke together, we have seen Jesus doing miraculous things, healing blind beggars like he did earlier in this chapter of Scripture in Jericho. We have seen him raising the dead and restoring limbs to people who have uh, limbs that didn't work. Jesus is doing miraculous things, and all of these things were prophesied that the Messiah would do. The reason the people now are praising God, the reason why they are joining this presentation of Christ as king is because the miracles have pointed to the reality of the person, that he is not just a great teacher, but that he is the Messiah, the promised king. And this is exactly what they were supposed to conclude. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, we're told this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God. To you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. The people have seen the evidence of Jesus as king, as Messiah, and they're convinced, as they should be. And so he comes authoritatively because he has demonstrated that he deserves it. His miracles demonstrated that he is the authentic Messiah. And then we read in verse 38 the words that they are saying. Verse 38 says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now the first of these quotations is a quotation from Scripture, from the Old Testament. 
It's a quotation from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is one of the psalms that was read in association with Israel's festivals. And the context of Psalm 118 was a conquering king saying these words. And if we read the passage, it would say almost exactly what we read here. Psalm 118 verse 26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that's not exactly what the people were saying. According to verse 38 of our passage, they were saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Why the difference? The answer is this. In Psalm 118, it is the king in context who is being blessed. It is the people saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The people are including the context of Psalm 118 in their blessing upon Jesus, in order to emphasize that the ceremony that he is following, the things that he is doing in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, in parallel with other inaugurations, are all designed to emphasize that this Jesus who who is coming is king. The blessing they pronounce upon him is to announce to the city, the king is coming and God's blessing is on him. The second phrase they say in verse 38 doesn't have any Old Testament background at all, but it emphasizes the spiritual nature of Jesus' kingship. Yes, he was coming as an earthly king, but he was also coming as a spiritual king. That last quotation in verse 38 says, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It's saying God's doing something supernatural. He's doing something cosmic, for lack of a better word that in addition to presenting himself as our king in Israel, God is subduing these demonic powers that have been warring against him in this moment. And so the disciples of Jesus understand that Christ is authoritatively presenting himself as king. They understand that this, the, all of these acts and words that are going on are designed to send a message to the people of Israel. The Messiah is here. Well, how was this message received? The answer is, it was not universally accepted. And here also we see another display of Jesus' authority. Not only did he declare his authority as he prepared to enter and through the ceremonial way in which he entered, but Jesus also declared his authority when his authority was challenged. Look at verse 39. All of this is happening and the Pharisees are freaking out, okay? Verse 39 says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now notice, the disciples are saying, here comes the king in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees ain't buying it. They're not going to call him king. They're not even going to call him Lord, which can sometimes be used as a polite title. They're going to say teacher. All right, they're trying to reduce the symbolism going on here. And they're also very worried, mostly about the Romans. They think if the Romans see this and they understand what's going on, We're going to have quite a battle on our hands, one that we are ill-prepared to fight. And so the Pharisees are very concerned about all of this. They don't like Jesus either, and that's a big part of it too. But they push back. They resist the symbolism and the words that are going on in this presentation of Jesus. But Jesus answers authoritatively in verse 40 when he says this, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. What's this? Again, just as the colt recognized the presence of the king and didn't buck him off or need to be trained, Jesus is saying all creation can see the appropriateness 
of this presentation of Cain. All creation, even inanimate objects, can see that God's moment in time has come. And if the people refuse their duty to praise the king, creation will kick in and fill in the gap. And the Bible tells us that this is still the case, that all creation is waiting for the redemption that Christ promised. In Romans chapter 8, verse 19 and verse 22, the Bible tells us, For creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The reason why the stones would cry out is they have been groaning under the weight of our sin, the the way we've wrecked the world with our disobedience. And they're longing for the redemption of God. And if the inanimate world can see Jesus entering as king and they know the importance of the possibility of this moment, Jesus says they'll cry out their praises to God, even if... My disciples are silenced. And so all of this is designed to recognize and declare the authority of Jesus Christ as king while he lived on this earth. The big idea that we should take away from this, the message for us, despite what happened historically, the message for us is really the same. It's the implicit message of this passage, which is don't reject the king. Instead, receive Jesus as king and submit to his authority. That's, remember, this is what inaugurations are supposed to do. They're supposed to quell people who might have revolutionary ideas. The Bible says that we as people, in our rebellion against God, have been revolting against God from the very beginning. We've been resisting the rulership of God over creation and over our very lives. The purpose of this presentation of Christ was to present him authoritatively and call people by faith to submit to him as king. And the rest of our passage details the importance of this. It tells us that there is a blessing that comes with those who receive Jesus as king. If you receive Jesus as king this morning, he will bless you with peace when you submit to his authority. Look with me at verses 41 through 42. Here we see the great compassion of Jesus Christ. He knows he's going to be rejected as king in Jerusalem despite this presentation. And yet, verse 41 says this, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. The human loss that will happen because they rejected Christ as king. And the spiritual um, fallout from this rejection are, are weighty. They're heavy in the mind and emotion of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus weeps over the city, and then he has words in verse 42 and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Now this is the second mention of peace in our passage. You'll remember that as the people proclaimed the king, that Jesus is king in verse 38, they also said, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And Jesus is saying, you've had the opportunity to experience peace in your life you who inhabit Jerusalem. But you didn't see it. Despite all the fulfillments of prophecy that Jesus has done throughout his life, but especially in this incident, despite the, the, the truthful declarations of the people that he is the king coming in the name of the Lord, that he has God's blessing, and that spiritual things are happening to bring peace through this event, 
God's people in Jerusalem did not accept him as king. Their rejection isn't complete yet. It's several days away yet. But Jesus knows what's happening. He knows he is not going to be received as Messiah. He knows that he's going to be rejected. And he says in verse 42, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But here's the point. Jesus came into this world to bring peace, to bring an end of hostility between God and humanity, between us and the true king, Jesus Christ, the one we rebelled against. Israel has not yet received the physical peace of God, the kingdom that he promised on earth at this point yet. But the promise of peace is still held out to those who come to Jesus by faith, to those who voluntarily bow before him now and say, you are king of my life and I submit to your authority. The scriptures say this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came bringing peace, but he bought that peace with his own blood on the cross. This is why Jesus had to be rejected, why he had to be crucified. It was so that he could stand in our place and receive the wrath of God that we sinners deserve for our sins so that he could give us peace with God as a gift. And this passage says we are justified through faith. And if you've come here this morning and you're not a Christian, the reason God brought you here though you may not realize it was his working that brought you here. But the reason he brought you here to hear this message was so that you could behold the King, Jesus Christ, and have the opportunity to bow before him, to submit to his authority and receive as a gift the peace with God that only Jesus gives. If you're not a Christian this morning, let me urge you to submit yourself to Jesus the King. And receive the peace of God that He alone gives. You do this by putting your faith and trust in Him alone as your Savior. He will bless you with peace when you submit to His authority as King. But there's a downside to this. Jesus has said, Jerusalem, if only you knew what I was offering you. But notice He says it's hidden from your eyes. And verse 43 goes on and says this, The days will come upon you. When your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Why, why um, or what happened when Jesus presented himself as king? Because people didn't see it. The disciples did. And Luke is very careful to say it's the disciples who were doing all of these things. But the town itself, Israel in general, most people did not understand. They did not recognize the symbols and the, and the authority of Christ. They rejected it, in fact. And Jesus said, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you, you did not see what Jesus was offering in fulfillment of prophecy. Because of that, Jesus goes into detail in verses 43 and 44 about exactly what the Romans will do. And in 70 AD, everything Jesus prophesied in these two verses happened. The Romans came to Jerusalem. They laid siege to the city so that no food could get in and no people could get out. 
They starved the people till they were weak. They built an embankment against it. They invaded the city. They killed thousands of people. And they destroyed the city, including the Lord's temple. All of this was prophesied by Jesus Christ. Because they did not recognize him, they did not bow to his authority as king. And this is what happens to everyone who rejects Jesus Christ. Just as someone who rejects and opposes the President of the United States will be found guilty as a traitor and will be treated as a threat to the state, the enemy of the state that they are, so everyone who opposes King Jesus will receive his authoritative judgment in their life. What will Jesus do if you don't submit to his authority? He will punish you if you don't receive him as king and submit to his authority. And I could take you to many, many passages of Scripture that say past this particular event that those who reject Jesus Christ as king will stand under the wrath of God. But here's one of them in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. The Lord says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true for those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. That last, those last two phrases describe the human race perfectly. We despise the authority of God because we want to live immoral lives that please our own self and our own sinful nature. The Bible says the Lord is holding all the unrighteous people, everyone who does not bow to the authority of Jesus for the day of judgment. And if you've come here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've not bowed before the authority of Jesus Christ, this is what awaits you when Jesus returns and fully establishes his kingdom. There will be a day of judgment for you. So I encourage you to receive Jesus as king and submit to his authority. Give your life to Jesus Christ. And once you do that, once you receive his salvation, his peace with God by faith, now you become one of his disciples. Most of us in this room have done that. We've come to the place where we've bowed before the authority of Jesus Christ, and now the lives we live are not our own. We are servants of the Most High God. We are soldiers, in some of the Bible's language, and servants of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And until he returns... It is our job to serve him in this life, to live according to his laws, and to spread the good news that peace with God is available through Jesus Christ. And this morning, all of us are in one of two categories. Either we've submitted to Christ and we're following him and we need to be obedient to his word. In other words, we're Christians. Or we're outside of his authority for the moment. We are unsubmitted to his authority. We're resisting King Jesus. And we are in the category of the people who will receive his wrath. Which one are you? Which category are you in? If you're not a Christian this morning, let me urge you to receive Jesus as king and submit to his authority. If you do, you will know the peace of God in your life now and for eternity.